basically if somebody has like a home in the urban center and he wants to have a forest within three years, he can use Miyawaki because he's sure that by creating this conducive environment for the trees to grow faster, he can say that in three years I have a small forest. So This is The Butterfly Effect, a podcast that shows the big impact a small action can do. Tali Orat is talking to those special people that make a difference with nature and trees. Welcome everyone to The Butterfly Effect. My name is Tali Orat. I'm your host and your butterfly here. My special guest today is Eric Ogalo. Eric is a performance-driven professional with a deep understanding of the field of natural resource management air quality monitoring, green circular economy, project management, responsible forest management, and landscape restoration. Eric served in various capacities with different institutes, implementing green and circular economy initiatives, leading NRM projects on forest landscape restoration and conservation, climate change, and integrated water resource management for the last eight years currently serving as a program officer at the Royal Danish Embassy in Kenya, coordinating a strategic sector cooperation, a government-to-government program on food safety, environment, and energy sectors. Previously served as a project coordinator at the University of Nairobi in partnership with GeoHealth Eastern Africa Hub, implementing a research project on air quality, health, and climate change. In addition, Eric provides advisory on tree growing, both at the community level and urban level, using the Miyawaki technique. He is also a chain of custody auditor with the Soil Association UK. Welcome, Eric, to the Butterfly Effect. Yeah, thank you so much, Tali, and I'm glad to, for you to host me today in this uh, amazing show. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, released a grim report at the end of February. 3.5 billion people are highly vulnerable to climate impact and half the world's population suffers severe water shortage at some point each year. One in three people are exposed to deadly heat streak, and this is projected to increase to 75% by the end of the century. Maintaining the resilience of nature at global scales depends on the conservation of 30 to 50 percent of earth land, fresh water, and ocean. Today, less than 15 percent of land, 21 percent of fresh water, and 8 percent of oceans are protected areas. And some regions like the Amazon have switched from storing carbon to emitting it. So this is the butterfly effect, right? I, I brought you here. Um, to talk about hope and plans and action. And I, I would love for us to get deeper into that hope. So in my introduction, I mentioned that you are an expert creating Miyawaki Forest. Can you tell us a little bit about more what it is and how this can help? Yeah, Miyawaki is like a technique for growing trees. Uh, mainly, is, uh, it's, it was invented by a Japanese called Akira Miyawaki. So he's the one who invented the technique and has been used widely in India and uh, also in Kenya. We tried it as ourselves. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's, uh, it's a process where you grow tree instead of, you know, normally there's a specific way of growing trees. 
where like you space them like one meter apart more so indigenous trees because they are always grow big and uh, they require much space but Miyawaki is contrary to this kind of uh, thinking it says that you go in one square meter you grow three or four trees then they compete for space then they grow faster and mostly is targeting uh, people in the urban centers because these are people who have small space they want green spaces fast and mm -hmm. uh, they can afford it actually because Miyawaki also is pretty expensive because it involves steps of preparing the soil mixing manure and something like rice husk and also maize husk to create a condition for the trees to grow faster mm -hmm. there's also a lot of watering so it's like you give the trees a very good head start in terms of the soil capillarity soil uh, ability to absorb water and ability to have uh, humus and all that so that's the technique and also you it also allows you to grow many trees in a small space so in basically if somebody has like a home in the urban center and he wants to have a forest within three years he can use Miyawaki because he's sure that by creating this conducive environment for the trees to grow faster he can say that in three years I have a small forest so basically that is Miyawaki the tree growing technique that you're talking about so you're from Nairobi yeah did you implement any of that in Nairobi yeah sure I did that yeah I used to work for a young organization called Kijani Forest for Change. So this organization was composed of five young people who came together because we were really saddened by the first rate at which trees are being lost in our country. So we could mm -hmm. travel across the countryside and uh, see huge tracts of forest uh, being destroyed. Of course, it took a long time for this to happen. Then we thought, what should we do? So for a long time, we were basing our thinking on community forestry, where we empower communities to bring back degraded forest. Mm -hmm. But we reached a point where we did not have funding to do this work because it was like voluntary and you had to buy the seedlings. Then we came across this technique. We were, I went for a training in India. I was not traveling to India. It was an online training by our forest organization. So the idea why we went for Miyawaki was to grow trees for the urban setup people so that we could get money to buy seedlings and empower communities to bring back the lost forest. So basically we ventured into Miyawaki as a like a resource-based kind of uh, intervention so that we could get money. Then where we used to have an office, it was a huge compound and we implemented Miyawaki there because again, people need to see the model so that they can conceptualize it then they can invite you to do for them such a model. Then they pay a fee. Then you use that fee to uh, like promote the tree growing in the huge forest that are being lost in Kenya. So basically, we implemented one. And uh, there, there's a huge forest right now in one of the compounds in current area in Nairobi. And was it replicated? Were others copying and, and doing another one like that? Or was it just a one-off? Uh, it was a model to showcase. Uh, we received interest, uh, but I think the issue also was cost because uh, people really wanted, really, really admired the model and they said, wow, this is great. If I could have this kind of uh, forest in my home and the beauty of it, it was purely indigenous trees and you could mm -hmm. also have uh, fruit trees in, in there and you could also create a very nice model where at the, at the periphery of the space, you could also have some herbs.
So we got mm -hmm. interest, huge interest. I remember I did, I executed two of them. The perception we have in Kenya is that tree growing is something that should not be commercialized. It's something that right. it's like a nature kind of thing is where you just buy seedlings and you plant them. So when you explain to somebody that, oh, this is Miyawaki technique, you, you don't just buy seedlings and plant. You have to create a model, you have to create a pattern, you have to think through the entire process. So they start seeing tree planting as differently. So the reason why maybe it didn't pick up very well and it didn't go viral is that some people thought that tree planting should not be that expensive. And they were not right. going to dig deep into their pockets and uh, go, go into it. But for the few people who inquired and the two of them that I executed, they are still happy up to right now. And they really appreciate that that kind of model can help them have a, a forest in their compound. We also offer training because we also wanted that if you could not pay uh, the cost of establishing the Miyawaki forest in your piece of land, then you mm -hmm. could train you and you could do it yourself. So we also did a number of trainings. And the people we trained, some of them executed. Of course, they could not do it exactly the way we had uh, described because it requires a very strict follow of uh, uh, SOPs, that is a standard operation procedure. So some of them could do shortcuts and then they realize that ah, this, this is not working. So they could call us later, then we go and correct what they have done. Yeah, so tell me, tell me about those SOPs. What, what are they? How complicated they are? Yeah, it's the, the standard operating procedure of Miyawaki is that number one, you have to dig the soil out. So let's assume that you have a, a piece of land of uh, 100 square meter, that is 10 meter by 10 meter. Then mm -hmm. uh, uh, Miyawaki says that, of course, it should not be 10 meter by 10, it should be 10 meter by 2 meters because you should not step on the, on the soil. It should be like when you're on the other side, you can reach this other side and vice versa. So the SOP says that you have to dig out the soil. After digging out the soil, then you have to get manure. Then you have to get something like either rice husk or uh, maize husk, something that can be mixed with the soil. Mm -hmm. Then you, you take half of that soil, you return it back. Then half of the soil you mix with the manure and the rice husk, then you return it back. So you fertilize it. In a way, you naturally fertilize the it's soil. Naturally, like trying to enrich the, the soil. It's like soil enrichment. Mm -hmm. So when you, of course, by digging up the soil already, you have already kind of uh, broken the hard, hardness of the soil. So the soil is already soft. Right. And when you mix half of it with these two things, the, the manure and the rice husk, it becomes aerated and, and soft. But after that, it will form a heap. Remember, you have added something. So it will form a heap. And also what you had... What you add in terms of humus and rice husk or maize husk has a ratio like one to one. So then at the end, of, by the time you return the soil, it will be a heap. I hope you can imagine it will be a heap because you have added more soil into what was there before. Mm -hmm. Then you don't step on it. It has to be soft soil. Then you, you imagine a pattern. So let's say you have 10 tree species. Then you, you create a pattern. I will plant this species here like Prunus africanus here. Mambuga Yogadensis here, Croton Megalocapus here, so that you, mm -hmm. you try to imagine the pattern you want to create so that it becomes a nice mosaic. And also it is advised that you, you, look, you also understand the nature of these trees, which one grows taller, which one grows shorter, which one spread on the side, so that you don't end up putting all species that have the same structure when they grow together. So you mix them. So you mix a taller tree and a shorter tree and a tree that grows wider. 
then at the end of it, it will form a nice pattern. Right. And they're all native? In this case, they have to be native. And also you have to study the environment to ensure that you don't introduce a tree species that is not native to that, that place. Right. Then you make the, of course, with that kind of thinking, you do it prior before you execute on the piece of land. In this case, we have the 10 meter by 2 meter. Then you make the holes in advance. Then you arrange the seedlings into the holes with that pattern you have in mind. Then you plant the seedlings, then you water it thoroughly. Mm -hmm. Then you do what we call mulching to ensure that the soil is always kept moist. Mm -hmm. And at least it can also help control weeds. Then after mulching, then you have to water like continuously around uh, like morning and evening. And just it requires a lot of water because this is the time that the trees, the soil is now soft. The trees are starting to get used to this conditioned soil. And the water is, is what is going to make them pick. Because remember, we have already transferred seedlings from one point to another and they have to get enough water to start the mm -hmm. growing pattern. Then, uh, so that's part of the SOP. So you have to follow that step by step. Then you have to mm -hmm. monitor them weekly. And the, the interesting part is that you can even measure them and see how fast they grow. You can take a measurement and after one week, you can see this tree has grown by one centimeter, two centimeter. You can also mm -hmm. measure the diameter and see it is growing. So you could actually see how fast the trees are really picking up. Then you also have to add the mulch. Remember mulch, they always, they are organic matter. So at some point they turn into soil. So you have to mm -hmm. keep on adding the mulch because the mulch helps to keep the soil moist and also helps to keep away the weeds. Until when are you doing that? You do this, uh, of course, the mulching, you can do it like after one month because if you put a mulch for it to turn into soil and humus, it's around three to four weeks. But mm -hmm. watering, you have to do like daily for about also one month. The first one month is a bit uh, very intensive because it's mm -hmm. the time that you don't want uh, to make the trees have like shock of transfer and all that. But right. after one month, you can always do periodic watering and also you can change the mulch after one month. Right. And, and when do you stop doing all of that? Or are you continuing doing that as long as the forest exists? I can tell you uh, it's, it's very addictive. If you like forestry, you cannot stop because you'll be amazed. <laughs> you can be am you'll be amazed how the trees are going fast as you watch. So basically, you will be having a forest growing in your backyard. So every morning you'll see new things like grasshoppers coming and life is in the, the forest. You'll see, right. you'll see like things like mushrooms coming out. And if you mix mm -hmm. some herbs, so it, it will be like very addictive. But in technically, after one month, you can now do periodical monitoring where you even do uh, after every one or two weeks where you tend to eat and remove the weeds and all that. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the beauty and the, the way somebody can get amazed, because most of us, uh, when we grow trees in the wild or in the forest, we don't interact with them. We just grow them, we leave them to grow, then maybe if we are, we are kind enough, we go back to check the progress. But this is a situation where you have a forest growing right in your backyard and you can interact with it and you can see how it is growing and you can measure and you can even take recordings. So once you start, it's very addictive and very interesting for you to keep on checking and monitoring the process. 
That sounds like heaven. You mentioned a lot of water, and Kenya is dry. How big of a problem is that? That is one of the conditionality that if you want to do Miyawaki, you know, uh, the normal tree growing in the forest, you, you time the rainy season. Like in Kenya, you have two rainy seasons, the, the long rains and the short rain. Those are the times we, we use it to do the tree planting. For Miyawaki, we don't use that. Mm -hmm. So the conditionality is that we have to ensure that you have water. We have to ensure that we can get the seedlings around. So basically, you have to have type, piped water. Uh, mm -hmm. a compound which also sometimes for urban setup is not a problem in Nairobi because mm -hmm. most of the homes are connected to piped water or either they have underground water that can has been pumped and can be easily piped for, for irrigating the Miyawaki forest. So what do you recommend instead for Kenya, at least for the rural area? For the rural area, I think we, we have to go with the what we normally do is that we, we use the rainy season. And uh, in Kenya, if you time the long rains, uh, it normally goes from March, April, up to sometimes up to May. So that's the time where we do a, a massive tree planting. So for the rural areas and for tree planting that is not targeting the, the urban setup and using the Mayawaki technique, then we have to make good use of the rainy seasons. And one of the, mm -hmm. also the issues that we need to also take care of is to prepare adequately for this timing by ensuring that the seedlings are available and they can be produced and also distributed to the community members, which also is a challenge sometimes we have because sometimes the rain comes, people are willing to plant trees, but seedlings are not available and everybody look, looks towards uh, the government because in Kenya we have the Kenya Forest Service which has tree nurseries all over the country. And sometimes they cannot meet the demand or people want mm -hmm. to plant trees. So I think uh, I would recommend that we be deliberate and put nurseries because an indigenous nursery takes around six months to grow. So mm -hmm. we all plan six months prior to the rainy season to stock our nurseries with indigenous tree seedlings so that when the rain comes, we have enough seedlings to, to plant in our forests or in our compounds in this case. And is that something the government is in charge of or making sure people are doing or coordinating? Or is it individual just decides, I, I want to have, I want to plant a forest in, in my area? How does it work? It's, it's a mix, actually. Uh, the government does a very amazing job because they do campaigns and tell people that uh, we, it's time to plant trees, kindly plant a tree. Because in Kenya, we have a target of 10% tree cover which we want to achieve and uh, at now i think we are between seven and eight percent so they always roll out campaigns to encourage individuals to plant trees and even themselves they organize tree planting uh, sessions where they invite the public to join so that they can mm -hmm. also get motivated to plant trees likewise also we have big corporates who who use tree planting as a social co uh, corporate social responsibility where they buy seedlings and they plant trees. The only major challenge we have is monitoring of the tree seedlings. So we do a lot of planting, but we are not keen to kind of do a follow-up and ensure that uh, the trees we plant, did they really survive? Is there aftercare thought? So I think the aftercare thought normally is a challenge because people are excited to do a tree planting, but I don't mm -hmm. think they're much excited to go back and check if they're growing. So that's the yeah. other challenge. But also, 
individual communities if you travel to the rural areas of kenya you will find uh, people selling tree seedlings in the marketplaces for people to buy at like uh, 50 cent, 50 50 like 10 kenya shillings which is like mm -hmm. 10 cent 10 cent 10 cent a dollar i don't know how to convert that because it's a <laughs> very very small amount of money that somebody can afford so communities themselves also plant trees because personally the reason why i like forestry because i used to see my dad buy seedlings from the market then he could come and he could give us to plant he could also mm -hmm. do the wildings because when you go to the forest you will find uh, the bigger tree had shed uh, uh, seed, seeds and the seeds have now grown into smaller seedlings. So those are called wildings because you don't need to take care of them. So you just go and uh, uproot it nicely and go and mm -hmm. plant it. And that's that way you have a seedling which which sometimes does not cost you anything. So it's, right. it's, it's a huge campaign in Kenya when during the rainy season to plant trees. But the challenge is the aftercare thought and getting the right seedlings. Yeah. Yes. And is there a plan to mitigate that? I think there are plans, but with the target we have, because Kenya has 5.1 million hectares of land that requires tree planting. This mm -hmm. is according to World Resource Institute. They did a mapping and uh, mm -hmm. part of the African Forest Restoration 100 initiative, which requires African countries to restore their degraded land. So you can imagine 5.1 million hectares of spaces that can accommodate trees. Mm -hmm. And that and one hectare requires around 500 seedlings. So if you multiply 500 times that number, is huge number of seedlings. Yeah. So I think we still need to really support uh, communities to how come up with seedlings, and also support them with knowledge of how to come up with nurseries. I think mm -hmm. the government is doing that also to stock their nurseries. But I also feel that there should be a way through which uh, we can empower more of even the young people to have nurseries. Right. But much is being done. We are slowly reaching there, but the, the gap is big. And uh, whatever we have to, to do to meet that gap of 5.1 million hectares of rest, to a rest, restore degraded land, we need more effort, which I think uh, maybe we are reaching there, but not yet. Yeah, and this is what the IPCC report is talking about. Um, our need to restore and, and Kenya plays a big part of it. Yeah, yeah, true, true, very true. And you're currently serving as a program officer at the Royal Danish Embassy in, in Kenya and working on food safety, which is another issue brought up by, by this report. What can you tell us about it? Yeah, uh, what I do currently at the embassy, I I support three programs actually. One of them is on food safety, one of them mm -hmm. is on green and circular economy, and one of them is on maritime. I'll talk about maybe the other two. Maritime is a bit still new, but the green and circular economy program, it aims to try to transition Kenya from linear model of manufacturing and production to a circular model. And by mm -hmm. circular, I mean you produce a product then when it produces waste you find out how this waste can be used back to produce something more either you upcycle by producing more valuable product in most cases we downcycle because we just use it to produce maybe uh, something that maybe a plastic uh, cup or plastic basic but it, it mm -hmm. can go as far as technical as recovering sugar from wastewater and using the sugar to make even bread recovering like sand and all that so right now we are trying to work with the Kenyan government to come up with an 
uh, extended producer responsibility uh, mechanism where companies will be mandated to be responsible for their waste so that they can have take back schemes and when they sell a product and produces waste they can register that product to a producer responsibility organization which will ensure that this product is taken back and used to produce something more valuable so that's what we do mm -hmm. on the environment aspect on the food safety we work on the issue of trying to uh, uh, engage farmers to produce safe food both for local consumption in kenya and also for export because in most, most cases we realize that we put much effort to produce safe food when you want to export to other countries more so in europe and other continents but when it comes to our own food that we consume in the country uh, they have some issues with safety and we are focusing on milk on dairy mm -hmm. and also we are focusing on horticulture so we do a lot of testing to show farmers the, the kind of uh, we call them the levels of pesticides in the, the crops on milk we work with farmers to ensure that they work with the value chain to ensure that the people who produce supply them with milk they use the right containers to supply the milk to reduce the bacterial infection on the milk we also ensure mm -hmm. that they are able to do incentives by even paying an extra um, shillings for a farmer who produce quality milk right. also to produce to put in place measures and guidelines that they can use to ensure that they they maintain safety when they produce and sell milk likewise when they produce horticulture or crops so that's what we do on food safety it's a huge agenda and mm -hmm. uh, it's, it's also a big problem that we have in the country we produce a lot of food and some of which is not safe because of the way it's being handled and the way it's also being uh, produced in the in the production setup so it's two very important initiatives. What are biggest obstacle you face when handling that? Responsibility. In Kenya, we, in terms of regulation, we tend to regulate food instead of regulating the food business operator. By this, I mean you need to regulate the person who is selling the food and not the food that has been produced by the person. Because the moment you regulate the food that has been produced by the person, then it means that it's, the food has already been produced. So if it is not safe, either you let it go and it's going to cause harm or it's not going to be used and the farmer is going to go at a loss. So we are also mm -hmm. trying to change this mentality and to engage the government and say, let us stop regulating food and regulate the food business operator. I, I feel like it's the same thing, but maybe I'm missing something. Because if they produce something that needs to stand by standards, right? By definition, you need to grow it or process it in a standard way. Otherwise, it won't. We won't get there. So, what am I missing? What is that? I want to give you a scenario. So, let's say I want to. I'm. I'm I've decided that I want to go into milk business, and I want to sell milk mm -hmm. this means that before i start this business i should know that what are the rules and regulations that i should follow for me to ensure that i produce safe milk yeah so when the inspector comes to your premises they should ask you you are selling me a yogurt for example uh, mm -hmm. have you, are you have you complied with the rules to ensure that you sell safe yogurt so remember this inspector is asking me as a person who has decided to sell yogurt the measures are mm -hmm. put in place to sell safe yogurt. 
but the inspector should not come and take a sample of my yogurt and ask me to go and test if it is safe. At that point, we, we lose control because we cannot control something that has already been produced, but we can control the inspector to ensure that he has procedures and standards to produce safe milk. For example, you can ask them, do you have a source of water? Where is your source of water that you use to clean your equipment? How, what are the protective gears you use when you handle milk? Where do you store your milk? Do you have refrigerators? But not to test the milk if it has a bacterial count that is required and if it has the right temperatures. I don't know if what I'm saying is making sense. No, it, it is right now. Okay, so it's the process that is doing it at the right process that will, is currently doesn't exist. So everybody's doing whatever they want and getting to some end result, maybe by coincidence it will be okay, maybe not. But if they'll follow proper procedures, the majority of their outcome will be passing a standard, right? Definitely, yeah, definitely. Okay. And... I mean, you, you were talking about um, milk, and for milk, we obviously need um, livestock, and for that, we need to clear areas that could be used for forestry. So I'm just curious, going back to the beginning of what we talked about forest and needing to have a forest with needing to clear land to have livestock. I think in the Kenyan context, most of the farmers... Uh, they do feed, they, they rely on feeds, and which is also another issue of safety because if the feed is not safe, then the milk is not safe. But in this case, uh, I, I won't say that they are not contrib a contributing factor to CO2 emission and forest degradation. They are actually, because some of these cattle, they are free range. They, grow it, they, they go into the forest and they graze into the forest. And mm -hmm. some of these people, they convert land. But there's no much on conversion because uh, I think most of these farmers, they have space which they can easily turn into production of uh, milk and meat without necessarily going to a forest. But when they decide to do free-range grazing and they go and graze this cattle in the forest, in that case, they contribute to degradation because they, they tree, they, the young seedlings that are coming up during the rainy season that can help restock the forest are mm -hmm. being... Uh, interfered with by the grazing animals so it's also a challenge in that way but in terms of conversion i don't think we have a lot of problem in terms of conversion of land into somebody wants to start uh, conversion yeah, of forest more of, land to, yeah. to, to, to or somebody wants to start a business in dairy or meat production yeah it's it's more of the grazing and, and yeah. do you see a lot of that yeah, definitely see a lot of that. But it depends. If you want to do it as a commercial scale, then uh, mostly they do feeds, where they buy feeds and they feed the animal with the feeds. And we have people who also plant these feeds in large fields and they sell to these people. If you want to do it on a small scale level, like you want to have one or two cows, then they might decide to do free-range grazing. And mm -hmm. in that case, they, they always affect the forest because it means some of them, they have to look for fodder during dry areas and they have to go into the forest. And it's an issue also that occur. Even when you don't do dairy, dairy cattle, you do the local cattle, which sometimes you also depend on it for milk, where we have people drive cattle into the forest and they destroy the young seedlings. And in that case, they contribute to the degradation of the forest. Right. Is there agroforestry in Kenya? Yeah, it is. There is agroforestry in Kenya. It's a practice people are doing, but it's not a huge practice. 
as we can say. Now, so normal is a very technical uh, kind of forestry that requires a lot of training and awareness so that they appreciate the need to have both in their farm. So it, it is there in Kenya, but I think the rate at which it's being adopted is not that much as compared to people growing trees into the natural forests. Yeah. So it seems like you have your work cut out for you, right? Are you hopeful? Yeah, I'm hopeful because even this 5.1 million hectares of space we have for to, to regenerate, uh, it has been marked. We have marked some areas for agroforestry. Like if you look at that map, they say that these areas we can, re we can regenerate with agroforestry. These areas mm -hmm. we can regenerate by planting indigenous trees. These areas we can do buffer zones. So the, the move by the Kenyan government to really do campaigns on the need to plant trees so that we reach the 10% tree cover Mm -hmm. They move by corporates to ensure that they put tree planting as part of their CSR and they move by communities to plant trees in their land. It's, it's a huge hope for us, actually. And the fact that we have space, because sometimes you desire to plant trees and there's no space to do that. So right. with that one, there's a lot of hope that we can really achieve this 10% forest cover so long as we really plan well. And uh, remember the two issues I said, so long as we really have enough seedlings and we really think about the aftercare so that we ensure that if we plant trees, at least we achieve 80% uh, survival rate. Right. So you don't have a problem of location, you have a problem of seedlings and taking care of them. And some cases water because of climate change. Now we expect rain, sometimes they don't come. So the water also becomes an issue. So mm -hmm. yeah, but water is because of now the unpredictable rainy patterns. You are ready with the seedlings, but the rains are not yet there. So that's something that also is a challenge now when we, we talk about tree planting. And, and how is the government handling that? Uh, of course, climate change is, is something that we can't control. Yeah. Control. <laughs> yes, <laughs> can't control, control climate change. But we, ha we have a lot of uh, adapt, uh, like adaptation measures and we have uh, water people being encouraged to have water pans. So that when there's huge rains, we're able to store water and we're able to, even we are being encouraged to do rainwater harvesting and also to adopt type of irrigation like drip irrigation that use less water. So there are many initiatives that are being promoted so that when this water comes and there's huge rains, we don't lose water because of floods and, uh, and all that, but we're able to keep this water in our tanks from harvesting from the roof and also we're able to have like water pans and even dams, so that when the water is gone, we are able to take care of the seedlings. So that's what is being promoted by, by most of the initiative the government is doing. Yeah, and it goes back to that circular concept, right? Nothing goes to waste. Yeah, yeah. And also, that's a good thing. And people knowing that when you wash your plates, you can always use that for kitchen garden. You don't have to throw out water. You, you wash, maybe you come from the farm and you wash shoes with water that water can also be used for other things so the circularity concept also can help us know that nothing should be always it's a resource that has to be continuously used so it doesn't need to you use you produce you use and you dispose you have to reuse it yes. again for another important purpose yes yes well, I appreciate that we managed to get to hope and, and uh, positivity I always finish by asking my guests about their favorite tree what is yours? My favorite tree is uh, Prunus africanus. I came to learn it from a friend when uh, I was 
at Kijani Forest for Change when I was exploring tree planting. And I like to use a beautiful tree and mm-hmm. it's a medicinal tree that also can be used to treat prostate cancer. And also it's being used by, if you have like chest congestion and you have stomach uh, discomfort, you can also use it. Mm-hmm. So I like it because it's a beautiful tree and also it can be used as medicine. And at the same time, people have really used it for, for a long time to, to create, to, to treat diseases and all that. And also it is, it is now getting extinct because of demand that it has uh, for the communities and even people in the urban setup. Thank you so much, Eric. This was fascinating and informative and hopeful in spite the IPCC Grim Report we started with. So thank you. Thank you for having me, Tali. And uh, I think uh, whatever we have shared can be used to inspire someone to do something. Because I also still believe that we, as young people and also people really depend on this world, we need to do a lot of tree planting. Because it is the only thing that can make us sure that we can address the issue of climate change amongst the other things yeah thank you so much yes yes amen to that thank you welcome and thank you everyone for joining me today we are all beautiful butterflies each in his and her individual ways i wanted to thank you for joining me today in this episode i really appreciate you coming on this journey with me and i hope you can join me next time and remember It only takes a small action to make a big difference. Be a butterfly. And that's all for this episode. Thank you for joining us today. Please subscribe to hear more of our stories of change. 